All right, guys and gals, let's open our Bibles briefly to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, put in at verses 12 and 13. I like that game where you're given a word and you're asked to say the first word that pops into your head. You know what I'm talking about, right? Let's do that now, only don't say it out loud. Well, you never know what you're going to get. I mean, so... Okay, so here we go. The word, uh, get ready. The word is Paul. Although there are no wrong answers, we are at church, so if you thought McCartney, you're way off track. Likewise, if you thought Blart or Rue. Some of you are cultured. I meant the Apostle Paul, the author of a good portion of the New Testament. Uh, Here's some trivia for you, by the way, just as a bonus. Who wrote most of the New Testament? That's true. It wasn't Paul. Paul Paul wrote the most books, 12, but Luke exceeded him in number of words with his gospel and the book of Acts. Looking at the entire Bible, both Testaments, Paul is number five on the list. Who would you say wrote the most in the Bible? Moses. I heard Moses. That's number one. This number two is going to surprise you. Ezra. Then Luke. Then another Old Testament prophet. Almost. Jeremiah. And then Paul. All right, so next time you're playing darts. Back to our first word that popped into your head. If you were thinking the Apostle Paul, I bet you weren't thinking prayer. That's not really the first thing that pops into our heads when we think of the Apostle Paul, not typically. But maybe it should be because after his dramatic conversion on the Damascus Road, Jesus appeared to Ananias and told him to go to minister to Paul, who was still called Saul. And one of the things Jesus said was this. He said, arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. And so one of the first pictures we have of Paul after his conversion is that he was spending time in prayer. That statement ought to encourage us to think of Paul in the context of prayer, but there's something more. Paul is set forth to be an example to us and for us of how to live the Christian life. We read in 1 Timothy 1.16, this is Paul writing, he says, I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. And so Paul says that the things that happened to him and his life in ministry and his walk with the Lord are a pattern that other Christians can look at and see what it's like to be a Christian and to walk with the Lord. Now, of course, Jesus is our primary and greatest example, but aren't there times we think that Jesus being the sinless Son of God, fully human and fully God, is somehow too high a standard? We shouldn't, but we do. But whenever that is the case, we have Paul, clearly a man of like passions as we are, a man born dead in trespasses and sins, yet wonderfully saved by the grace of God. Paul himself said, without boasting, 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And so he was aware of this ministry that he had of imitation, of being a pattern. Um, Now, we all 
in, in a sense, also are living epistles, the scripture says, no, to be read by all men. Uh, but Paul, uh, in, in a very prominent way, says, one of the ministries that the Lord has given me as an apostle is to be a pattern and an example, and you are to imitate me. If Paul could be so closely associated with prayer, then so should we. Now, one way to follow Paul would be to read and study his actual prayers as recorded in the letters he wrote, and that's going to be a focus that we take on these nights that we have uh, dedicated more to prayer. We're going to look at the prayers of the Apostle Paul, not in order to pray them, obviously, but in order to pray like him, to learn about prayer and what was on his heart and what might be on our hearts and how to be motivated in prayer, all those kinds of things. If we do it chronologically, following Paul from his conversion to his final imprisonment and beheading him, uh, and beheading rather, we would start in the first letter he wrote, which scholars say was 1 Thessalonians, and his first prayer in that first letter is the verses that I had you turn to, where he says, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Don't you find it significant that his first recorded prayer in his first letter was grounded in the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ with his saints? I think Paul was a guy who would get up every Sunday and give a prophecy update and say things like, ready or not, Jesus is coming. Of course, these Thessalonian letters filled with the uh, important doctrines of, of the last days, but his first recorded prayer grounded in that doctrine. Now, we always need to try to determine which coming of Jesus a writer is referring to. There are different words for coming in the Bible. The Greek word used here is parousia. It literally means presence or being alongside. It is commonly translated coming, but it actually means presence. That's more uh, capturing the meaning of it. We use coming in the same way today. You might introduce a guest to an audience by saying, we're thankful for the coming of Mr. So-and-so. The person wasn't coming. He was already there, present among you. So Friday night when we have our beloved's banquet, I I might get up and say, I want to thank Mike for coming. Mike uh, Ostheimer is going to be our guest speaker. And nobody's going to look around and think, well, I hope he gets here. I mean, he's supposed to be speaking right now. No, he's already there. We want to thank him for coming and being present among us. At the coming of our Lord refers to the fact that believers are going to be present with the Lord at the very moment we're caught up to meet him in the air. He'll take us home to glory to the place he has prepared for us. This coming does not refer to the return of the Lord with his saints to establish his kingdom, but to our coming to heaven into the presence of the Father at the resurrection and rapture of the church. And so Paul grounds his first prayer in the hope of the coming of Jesus to take us home. Future things fueled Paul's prayers because, for one thing, they remind us there is an urgency about the Christian life. Hey, there's an urgency about life all the more the Christian life where we have a work to perform for the Lord. I may not have a tomorrow. You may not have a tomorrow. The Lord may come for me personally in death or for us corporately with the blast of the trumpet and the voice of the archangel. 
And, and that kind of urgency spurs us on to do work for the Lord. Now, continuing to work backwards a little, we see what the Lord has promised to do for us. Paul says he's going to establish our hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father. In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul explains that this way. He says that he might sanctify and cleanse you with the washing of water by the word, that he might present you to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. And so this is the end that Jesus promises you. You will be finished. You will be perfect. In Philippians, Paul put it this way, being confident of this thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Your salvation is a three-part process. First, you are saved. You encounter the life-giving gospel of Jesus Christ, and you are saved. Second, you are being saved. Now, that sounds a little weird, I know, like you're being tested to see if you're really saved. But what being saved means is that you are day by day becoming more like Jesus as his spirit lives in you and as you yield to him. The Bible word for it is sanctification. And so you're saved, you're born again, you're given the Holy Spirit, and then you begin, begin a journey towards what God has planned for you. And the time that we're on the earth, we're being saved in the sense of being sanctified, set apart, changed, conformed, becoming more like Jesus, or at least that's the plan. And then third, you will be saved. And by that, I mean what Paul is talking about in the verses we're quoting. We will be with Jesus one day in resurrected or resurrection bodies, finished, blameless, holy. And this is sometimes referred to as our glorification. And so we're saved, being sanctified, and we'll one day be glorified. All of that is sort of the doctrine that undergirded Paul's prayer request for them, which is in verse 12, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all just as we do to you. And so Paul, thinking about the Thessalonians, wanting to go back to them, you remember, you might not remember, but he was uh, run out of town after maybe as little as 14 days or as much as 21 days, and he wanted to get back to them. And he had just received a good report from Timothy about them. And the thing that is most on his heart is that they would increase and abound in love to one another and to all. In this epistle, love is seen as an action. For example, he earlier mentions that they had a labor of love. It's not affection, as interesting and important as that could be, but it's an active seeking of the welfare of another. Now, I'm sure they had affection for one another, uh, later on, we'll see, or in this epistle later on, you see that as some of them were dying, they were weeping for one another and wondering about their eternal destiny and things like that. So when we say things like love is an action or love is a verb or love is... It doesn't mean that you can't be affectionate or that you can't be loving about loving somebody or that it's just a cold concept. But ultimately, it is doing something for the welfare of another uh, to encourage them in their walk with the Lord. He calls upon Jesus to make them increase and abound in love to one another. Love was something they already displayed. It was a characteristic of their fellowship. When people thought of the, uh, the fledgling church at Thessalonica after just a short time, they thought of their love for one another and for others. Think to yourself about other churches, either locally or wherever. 
what word or words characterize each church? I think you could do that. We're not going to take time to do it now. But if you think of certain churches, certain concepts or words kind of describe that church as to what they emphasize. Churches can indeed have a good reputation for Christian virtues and values, but some seem to emphasize some things more than others. Love is the very best thing a church can be characterized by since God is love and the, all the law and the commandments are boiled down to what? Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love others as yourself. And so um, it's a wonderful thing if people would say, oh, I go to such and such a church. And they say, oh, yeah, that church, the people there love each other and they love this community. And... Um, I think obviously all churches should be characterized that way, but what a joy it was for the Thessalonians. But Paul wasn't simply commending them for this reputation. He was praying that it would increase and abound more and more. Love is something we can't ever overdo. It ought to be abounding, which means overflowing. One thing that that suggests to me, I like to mention as I get older, is there's no such thing as Christian retirement. The longer you've been walking with Jesus, the more you ought to be doing as you respond in love to his love. You can retire. I I think that's great. People are retiring younger and younger. Some people have three careers. Retirement from three careers. You can retire when you're 25 for all I care. That'd be fantastic. But you never retire from Christian work. And instead of doing less, you ought to do more. You know, the worldly model is you keep doing less as you get promoted. And, and finally, you know, you've got three years of vacation time that they pay you for and you're just gone. But in, in the Lord, we are always doing more because love should be abounding and overflowing. If we're not doing more then we're restricting the flow of love in our life. And to all, Paul prayed. Again, they were already doing this. Early in the letter, he commended them for the fact that the gospel was going out to many places thanks to them. Sharing Christ is the highest form of love you can show to a non-believer as it takes into consideration their eternal destination. Bringing the gospel to those who don't know Christ is a great overflow of love, is it not? It it, it considers eternity, which is far more important than any other issue that that person might have. And then Paul said, just as we do to you. He and his traveling companions, they were growing in love for the saints that they left behind in Thessalonica. They had not just fond memories of them, but they loved them more and more, and they wanted to be back with them. If Paul could increase and abound in love, so could they, and so can we. Only you can determine what that means for you tonight at this point in your sanctification. A lot of times, I don't know if you've noticed it lately, but sometimes I just am leaving the scripture there, as you would say. So Paul says to increase and abound in love, and I, rather than give you five ways of doing that, you need to talk to the Lord. It means something to you tonight. Just say, as we go back to prayer, Lord, how can I increase and abound in love? Show me. I don't need Pastor Gene or any other pastor or teacher to show me. You're my teacher. I see that I should do this, so tell me how to do that. And the Lord, he'll honor that. Maybe not tonight. 
You may not get anything tonight, but he will honor that. He will start showing you ways. Or you might just find yourself uh, growing and abounding in love as a result of asking. Determine tonight as you wait on the Lord in prayer with the aid of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And we saw that Jesus began a good work in us, that he's going to bring it to perfection. This is one way of cooperating with that work. Love is our part because if we love him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength and love others as ourselves, we're going to discover good works that Jesus has set before us that encourage holiness in our walk now that will be rewarded later. And so that's essentially a, a, a subset of what Paul is talking about. He says, love God with all your heart. You can't help then but love others as yourself. And as you do that, you'll be doing good works that God has before ordained that you should discover. And as you do that, you will be storing up reward for yourself in heaven at the time that you will be declared blameless and holy and perfect before your Father in heaven. And one thing I will say as we close the study, as you pray for others, I believe your love for them and for everyone will increase and abound. 